Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Back when I was in my early 20s and in college and studying political science, there was this pretty nice story that a lot of people in that field seemed to believe. And it was this story that was outlined in Francis Fukuyama's book, uh, The End of History and the Last Man, which basically said, hey, liberal democracy, the kind of governance that we have in the United States and Canada and Europe and the rest of it, has defeated fascism and it has defeated communism. And there is no credible ideological competitor. Those two big things that could have threatened it are gone. Uh, other things, like, say, theocracy, doesn't actually represent a legitimate threat to liberal democracy because you can't export theocracy and you can't really export nationalism. Those phenomena are limited to a discrete group of people. However, as an ideology that can be exported elsewhere and flower in other places, liberal democracy is basically it. And I remember reading Fukuyama and talking to my professors and liking how this story sounded because it made me feel good and it made me feel like history was going in the right direction. And a big example that this story had was South Korea. South Korea was always held up as a country that used to be kind of on fire and was marked by militarism and problems and seemingly unsolvable issues, yet somehow joined the community of states that embraced what was considered a legitimate form of government. And today, during this series on North Korea, I want to give you a brief, very brief look at South Korean history. Now, I know that in this series, I am skipping things. We started well before the 20th century, and the series is going to end in the present, so skipping things is basically essential. I know I glossed over a whole bunch of Korean War stuff. And this episode especially is going to be glossy, given that we're going to talk about pretty much everything from 1945 to just after 1987 in about 20 minutes. So... After the war ended and the Korean Peninsula was partitioned and occupied by the Soviet Union and the United States, what Kim Il-sung was to the Soviet Union, Rhee Singman was to the U.S. And I know I referred to him as Singman Rhee earlier in the podcast, but yeah, he's Korean, so his surname should be first. So for the sake of consistency now, I'm going to call him Rhee Singman. Anyway... Rhee Singman got his position as the first real leader of South Korea in no small part because he'd studied abroad. He had studied at Princeton, and he spoke English fluently, and that gave him a certain amount of leverage with the occupying Americans that his potential political competitors just didn't have. So Rhee Singman was a shoo-in from the American point of view— and it's not just that he spoke English and got along with the Americans. He had been active in Korean independence movements beforehand, but so had also a lot of other local politicians. He was the one, though, who could talk to and socialize with the 
military occupiers, the people who were in power. So, almost immediately after being essentially installed, Rhys Sigmund did everything to solidify that power. That included getting rid of competitors, but it also included putting down popular movements that could have made trouble for him. Most notably, there was a 1948 uprising, so very quickly after the end of World War II, in Jeju. That's an island just south of the Korean Peninsula. It's a large island kind of between Korea and Japan. The residents protested an election that they felt would lead to permanent disunification of the peninsula, and Rhee's forces responded by killing thousands of the island's residents. To this day, we don't know how many. The low number of people killed in the Jeju uprising repression was 14,000. The high number is about double that. We just don't know. But regardless of whatever number you use, Rhee Sigmund is responsible for the death of a big proportion of this island's population, between about a fifth to a tenth, depending on which figures believe. And he wasn't subtle about this, and the United States was a bit uneasy. Neither Truman nor Eisenhower particularly liked them. Eisenhower considered him a rogue ally, given his habit of killing people he didn't approve of, but the U.S. didn't really bother finding a better replacement. He was a thug, but he was our thug. We stayed in power by thuggery and by manipulating laws and politicians and the South Korean constitution in his favor, but it could only last so long. By 1960, Rhee's government was under pressure from a lot of popular protest movements to step aside, and Rhee, even after winning some fixed elections where he had quote-unquote won by big impressive numbers, he fled Korea to Switzerland, where he died about five years later. For a moment, after this 1960 uprising, it looked like democracy was about to take hold in South Korea. It didn't. Instead, a year later, in 1961, we got a coup by a general named Park Chung-hee, who overthrew a democratic government that existed for about five minutes. Uh, that president, Yun Bo-seon, he stayed on for a little while after the coup took power to give that military government a patina of continuity and legitimacy— but he soon stepped aside under pressure, and General Park became President Park. I mentioned President Park fairly recently in the episode about North Korean agents trying to assassinate him a lot and also successfully killing his wife. But he initially made some noises about restoring democracy and instituting political freedom at the beginning of his regime, but those were just words. Most of his rule was marked by martial law and a lot of stuff out of the Rhee Singman playbook. That is, manipulating the laws and the Constitution in particular so you can stay in power. So that's two militaristic dictators now who are fiddling with the supreme law of the land for their own benefit. Park was killed, I already mentioned this, in 1979. After several attempts on his life by North Korean secret agents, he was killed by a South Korean secret agent, a guy named Kim Jae-gyu. And to this day, we don't know why Kim Jae-gyu pulled the trigger on President Park. Uh, it's still got a lot of speculation swirling about it, 
Um, I got the impression that there was a certain amount of like speculation and conspiratorial thinking about this. Kim Jae-gyu might have been acting alone. It might have been purely impulsive. Or this could have been part of a larger conspiracy inside the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. We just don't know. Uh, apparently, Kim Jae-gyu has something of a divided legacy nowadays. There are plenty of people who consider him to be a hero because, hey, he got rid of a dictator. And there are plenty of folks who think, oh, hey, he got rid of a dictator, but you shouldn't just Ides of March a guy because you don't like him. That's not how stable, functional governments work. Anyway, the death of Park didn't mean that, you know, some stable democratic government was just going to sail on in after he was gone. After that, South Korea got Choi Kyu-ha, who got forced out by a coup d'etat, and then Chun Doo-hwan, the beneficiary of a coup d'etat, who was done in not by an assassin's bullet, but by all kinds of corruption that came to light. Uh, he had a stolen art habit. At the end of his administration, officials found that he had 350 pieces of stolen art, most of them Korean antiquities, which altogether were worth over a billion won. And admittedly, stealing art is not nearly as bad as killing thousands of people, rewriting a constitution, uh, making your political enemies disappear, or anything like that. But it's still not a great look. And, you know, using your office to enrich yourself, I think we can all agree that's bad. Anyway, Chun Doo-hwan was not forced out by an assassin's bullet or a coup d'etat or anything like that. Uh, instead, in 1987, South Korea finally had a real election. Like, a real one, where the votes were counted accurately, and people got to debate things and state their preferences. And it's been pretty much like that ever since. This is amazing. This is a country that went from a military dictatorship for decades and then peacefully transitioned into a democracy. So small wonder that when I was in my early 20s and lots of political science professors were trying to make us all feel good about Francis Fukuyama's book, they would all talk about South Korea, like it was some harbinger for the rest of the world, like Everything else would just pull a South Korea, and liberal democracy would just kind of happen, because it happened here. And again, it is amazing that it happened, but who knows if that's actually a model that's going to repeat again and again and again in lots of other countries. But what's this mean for North Korea? Because, because this is just a digression. The series is about the North. And I'm not taking some time to talk about South Korea just to have a break from all of the misery and repression that this series has dwelt on. Though there is that, I have appreciated this two-episode break from all the misery and repression. But because for a long time, South Korean politics was grist for North Korea's political mill, for their propaganda. South Korea was chaos. There were coups. There was repression. There were thousands of people getting killed on Jeju, at the hands of Ree Sigmund's thugs. It wasn't hard for North Korea to make itself look good by comparison, because it didn't have so much outward chaos. It just had really samey, repetitive 
repression. So for a long time, North Korean propaganda loved talking about South Korea, and North Korea loved representing itself as the more together country. What's more, for a while, during the Cold War and after the Korean War, North Korea was in fact wealthier. Again, South Korea was the agricultural area, and North Korea was the industrialized area. North Korea had access to the heavy industry that lets you make cool stuff, and South Korea had cereal grains. So for a long time, how we think of the Korean peninsula, and wealth, and stability, and continuity, was flipped. The situation is very different now, and North Korean propaganda and North Korean media has a different type of relationship to South Korea. And you see this all the time when people talk about North and South Korea. Uh, everybody does this. I did this back in episode two of this podcast when I talked about the axe murder incident of the DMZ. You look at the peninsula at night and one area is lit up with lights and the other area is dark. South Korea is vibrant and electrified and modern and filled with very good StarCraft players and North Korea has nothing. There is a small spark of light around Pyongyang, but that is pretty much it. And yes, this is a cliched thing everyone points out, but it is nevertheless evocative. Because now North Korea has to do everything possible to make sure its own citizenry doesn't know about South Korea. Doesn't know about the wealth and success and stability that South Korea now enjoys. If North Korean citizens were more aware that there is a Korean state where they could speak their own language and practice their own culture and have their Koreanness, but with more wealth and less violence... That would be utterly disastrous for North Korea. Arguably, too many North Koreans know that already. And North Korea does everything it can to keep South Korean media out. This is very different from, say, when Germany was divided. East Germans listen to West German broadcast all the time. Not only that, they listen to Voice of America. They listen to the BBC. They consumed basically any radio or television that they could get their antennas to pick up. In North Korea, though, it is illegal to have a radio that's tunable. It's illegal to have a television that's tunable. Making your rabbit ears pick up signals from the other country on the peninsula is a crime punishable by re-education in a labor camp. And that punishment extends not just to you, but also your entire family. One last thing. South Korea still has plenty of problems. But they are the problems of a relatively normal liberal democracy. Uh, for example, one of the former presidents right now is under investigation because she uh, got involved with a cult. Uh, basically, she ended up giving a bunch of money to this Rasputin-like guy who was in charge of this organization called the Church of Eternal Light. And it looks like she might go to jail for, you know, misallocating a bunch of government funds and sending them to this, like, weird, creepy, kooky religious organization. Also, there is horse dancing involved. I will link to a story about it over at weirdhistorypodcast.com. It's amazing. But, again, that was a problem that was solved without any violence, and having weird, kooky religious people in charge of your country is just something that, I guess, liberal democracies have to cope with. 
every so often. So South Korea, it went from being a propaganda poster state for the North to something that the North has to shield its citizens from if the Kim regime wants to stay in power. And speaking of the Kim regime, it's time for Kim Il-sung to die. However, that won't stop him from continuing his presidency. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Please go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. Thank you, all of you who do that thing every single month. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart and also from the bottom of my lungs, liver, pancreas, and several other life-giving organs. I appreciate you, all of you. Go to iTunes and bedeck the podcast with your words and stars. Go to social media and click the like button. On Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. On Twitter, I am at Joe Streckert. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 